0: Well, welcome back to Linga Retallica with me, Jess Benny-Smith, and my co-host Wes Robertson. Hello. Uh, in this episode today, we're chatting with vocalist and lyricist Andy Walmsley of Beyond Grace, all the way from Nottingham, England. Uh, so thanks for being with us, Andy. How are you? Uh,
1: tired. It's very early morning. <laughs> um, as I have explained, I am not a morning person. Uh, I tend to do... Weirdly, I, I've gotten to have... It. I get really creative when uh, it gets dark. Mm. Um, so I'm always up reading or watching something and often doing all my lyric writing uh about, you know, between 12 and 3 a.m. kind of thing. And then mm-hmm. I'm up for work about 8-ish. Um, so on the weekends, I tend to sleep in until like in the afternoon. And then I uh, foolishly said to, to our press guy, Oh, Lingua Britannica, I want to do that. Didn't double check where you were time wise <laughs> uh, and, and Will came back and went, Oh, they're really, they'd like to speak to you. I was like, Great, I'm really enthusiastic. And he went, It's at 9 a.m. on a Saturday. And I went, I'm going to kill you, Will. I'm going to actually kill you. <laughs>
2: well you know we, we um, probably could have done 1am uh your time that might have been i think that's like a true. I, yeah
1: should have thought about that i would have been uh, up often and, and doing stuff uh, i was definitely awake last night uh reading and doing some other stuff it's fine i'm more than happy to be here so <laughs> have me.
0: thanks yeah um i should have it's asked before here. we started so, as well like are you good with um andy or andrew which do you prefer
1: uh andy uh it goes in in levels of how much in trouble I am with my parents from the most kids, so Andy's fine, Andrew's awesome. bad, Andrew Wormsley <laughs> is, is particularly bad, and when the middle names start coming in, then it's basically just run, hide under the bed, you've definitely broken like, mum's mm. favourite fine china kind of thing. Awesome, um, so I always Andy, have to check. Andy, shorter.
0: <laughs> always got to check, as an Australian, I have a tendency to shorten names when I shouldn't, so...
1: <laughs> I'm fine with that.
0: Awesome. Plus, plus our basis so,
1: is Andrew, of, uh... so...
2: Okay. So speaking of, um, you know, living with parents and getting scolded by them, uh, how did you get into metal? Were you were you a teenager? Was it uh, was it a problem or did you pick it up kind of later in life?
1: Uh, no, uh, pretty, pretty early. Uh, I, I blame my dad. Mostly I, I have very strong memories as a child, you know, like. About as far back as I can remember car journeys with him were always things like Yes and Pink Floyd and King Crimson Uh, then stuff like, you know, there's a lot of Queen and Bon Jovi and uh, Def Leppard and The Who it was all that sort of stuff that started me off down the path you know, when you you get into that sort of thing and I didn't necessarily rebel so much as just extend from that trying to find I think my own identity more Mm. than anything Um, uh, Hardcore was the first thing I got into Um, bands like I didn't jump straight in the deep end, but you know, AFI were, a, a, and Boy Sets Fire were a huge discovery. Zao and Earth Crisis and Shia Halud, uh, Vision Disorder. For some reason that, that I, that's a very clear memory. I think it was, you know, around the time that was early teenage years, uh, sharing mini discs of all things. If I remember correctly, it was, we, instead of like tape trading, we were tape, we were sharing mini discs we'd all put together and recorded and, you know, stretched out the timing on so we could fit as many albums in as possible. Um, at the time, sound quality apparently at the time was not important to me, uh, mm. looking back on it, because uh, those things, the more you, more you put on them, the worse they sounded. Um, and then I, so I was still listening to like, you know, some metal, because there's always a crossover, in mean, hardcore mm. metal and, and punk and metal, there always has been. Um, and I remember, you know, I, obviously it's been a while now. And it's very in the morning, and I've drunk a lot of alcohol since the, these over the years. Um, but my my vague memory is I'm listening to sort of you know I had Master Puppets that was you know it's a classic album for a reason. There was uh, significant other by Limp Biscuit because um, obviously these are kind of the new metal years as well. You know it's all just mm-hmm. a mix of oh, I'm just picking and choosing stuff that you know just kind of hits my ear. Didn't really have the wasn't part of the community in the sense of you know I can really deep dive. So it was really quite. I wouldn't say superficial but you know surface level of just you know scanning across and occasionally picking something out and I remember I was on holiday uh with my parents and we found the only CD shop in Malta as far as I can remember um and it was one of those places where it listed every band alphabetically but not by genre so it was just one of those things where you just you just flick through Mm. the CDs on this table uh and I remember something across Dead Heart and a Dead World by Nevermore I had the vaguest inkling of that that name was important, and they had a very spiky logo and I like the spiky logo and I'd never heard them before in my life i said i just want to, I want to get this this can be my, my c d from the shop and I remember that being a massive turning point um, I think that was that band was where I discovered really gained an appreciation for riffs and rhythms um, the way that metal does things separate to pop and everything else i that was my sort of road to damascus moment of there's something actually i don't just like this there's something special about this genre that really connects with me
0: Hmm.
2: so what when did you get into the genre that you would describe beyond grace's music to fit in like how would you define this band to someone that hasn't heard them before and what was kind of the gate into that uh specific realm of extreme metal
1: that's a good question uh well i Can I remember when I got, so I, I would, I generally just, uh, these days just say death metal. Uh, we used to jokingly call ourselves omnidimensional death metal because we thought (laughs) it was funny. Um, because we are, you know we're a little bit proggy, but we're not progressive in the, you know, we're not just doing the generic ripping off Pink Floyd thing, which uh, a lot of bands do, which by the way, is, is, is no bad thing. Pink Floyd are, are one of the best bands of all time. If you can even, if you can steal even, uh, an iota of their talent and their ability, uh, you're onto a winner. Uh, we're a little bit technical, uh, mainly because the guys are very good players, but it's not flashy technicality, you know, um, it's not Archspire, uh, for example, whose new album I actually have heard. And, uh, Ooh. Whew, yeah, that's a, that's a hell of a record. Um, you know, my, my guys can play. I'm, I'm so lucky to have musicians, uh, cause I am a, a mediocre musician at best. Um, to work with who are that talented, but also that interested in songwriting, you know. There's, yeah, I just, I just, I generally just say death metal. Um, it, it's a slightly, well, we always thought it, we, we always thought it was a slightly more modern version of death metal, but a lot of the reviews have been <laughs> bringing up uh, our our traditionally old school sound, which I'm not entirely certain is true. Maybe it is when we stumbled into it. Um, but I, I how do I? I think the pathway was something like I earth crisis did a song with Rob Flynn from machine head, which led me to discover uh, their first album, which obviously is a, is a classic. But my eyes is a you know, bit thrash, a bit hardcore, a bit death metal, which is you know, a lot of stuff I kind of loved from then. You know, when I realized that, you know, this, this little, I little, little, this little opening in the metal aperture that made me realize there was a lot more out there that I hadn't listened to. I remember, discovering, I think, In Flames and Satiricon quite quickly. And mm-hmm. through In Flames, I found hypocrisy. And I think hypocrisy were the the first one to really get me into what you would call proper death metal, real death metal. And then it's, it's all that sort of, you know, it's like that Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon thing. Hypocrisy led to dismember and, and, and immolation and all that sort of stuff. You can just see the, the steady progression into slightly heavier and harder stuff. Um, you know, they get you with the light stuff, and then then no, that's no longer a good fix anymore. So you need you need more and more.
0: Hmm. So was there anything about, like, the lyrics of death metal that drew you in initially that kind of led you down that path you just described?
1: Uh, no. <laughs> uh, to put it bluntly. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. Let's be honest. Most death metal... Uh, I've I got to say most metal bands' uh, lyrics are... I wouldn't say an afterthought, but they're not the focus by any means. Um, I have... I've listened to a couple of other episodes of of this podcast because I was really interested to hear what other people had to say about lyrics uh, from their perspective, and a lot it was it was gratifying to hear a lot of other musicians say that you know death metal has a certain lyrical area. There's a lot outside it, if you know what I mean. But you know, if, Mm. if it's a if it's if it's a bell curve there's there's the the middle section the bigger section is you know zombies gore violence it, it, it's it's horror movie metal if you know what i mean in that sense yeah sure mm. um you know cannibal corpse uh being a, a perfect <laughs> example uh re- remarkable yeah, <laughs> really yeah, like put, a bell yeah. remarkably what, what the thing is it was thinking is people underwriting remarkably good lyricist um he's actually got a, quite a gift for language. Uh, particularly because they've done so many albums, and he's actually quite good at not really repeating himself. Mm. Um, the, the amazing uh, number of uh, synonyms he's found for murder <laughs> is, is, is very impressive. Uh, but there, there are exceptions, you know. Uh, as I said, Immolation, huge fan. Their sort of stuff has always been actually quite political. Uh, people, can, people really underestimate that. All the people getting keep politics out of metal. What several of the defining. Founders of the genre and and all the subgenres were incredibly political. Like Black Sabbath were accidentally political. I mean, Ozzy said he just you know wrote a lot of his lyrics while high and, and just thought about what <laughs> rhymed. But once they'd set up a concept, you know that sort of thing, that the specific lyric content might got a bit messy at times, but there was still some sort of message to it. Um, but then you've got stuff like Hypocrisy again, who mm. uh, their early stuff is is generic Satan worshipping stuff and then part way through suddenly they started writing about aliens total lyrical shift that you know in that particular case that really interested me because that is a, such a, a a strange and unique perspective you don't really we do now obviously that now now that uh, now that tech death exists every song is about aliens and exploding planets and whatnot um but the alien abduction angle Uh, Was a big draw for them just because it was such a a different subject matter, Mm. and I I don't think lyrics are unimportant. I think the lyrics, a lot of lyricists, you know, like doing them; they enjoy them, but they don't necessarily invest that much meaning into them.
0: Mm. In
1: a lot of death metal, Mm. Uh, it's fun; it's decoration; it's it's a lot of them tell a story, don't necessarily have a message, which is Mm. not a criticism by any means um but one of my favorite albums of oh god was it last year or the year before i've lost track of time because well, yeah because the this time has stopped functioning because of the world shutting down um <laughs> i think it was last year uh, protest of the heroes latest one which i'm a huge huge fan of that band um their vocalists their lyricists so i've already segued from death metal sorry i do this a lot my brain Sorry, right. go ahead um amazing vocalist amazing singer uh lyrically just so good every song tells a story every story has a message it can be read for either um but the the wordplay the imagery he conjures is just fantastic um and i think painting with a broad brush a lot of death metal you either get a message or you get a story you don't always get both together
2: We yeah. actually had comments about that. People who've uh, told us that, um, you know, they feel comfortable sending a message or they feel comfortable telling a story, but they're not really sure how to kind of combine the two. It seems like um, related, but not necessarily overlapping skill sets.
1: Yeah. It's it's hard because it is something that I talk to with other people in the metal scene. Um, I know me and I'm going to name drop here. I'm, I'm to, me and Ken from um, Abigail Williams uh, have chatted mm-hmm. off and on. Um, because I've, I've been trying to get him to do one of our lyrical columns at NCS for ages and haven't managed to pin him down yet. Uh, I will, I'll get him eventually. Uh, about how, <sighs> I think everyone I've ever spoken to overwrites for every song. Mm. Uh, I always do. Uh, and everyone, everyone I've spoken to, uh, whether they write lyrics before a song is even written or whether they write the music first and then write, they almost always write too many words and try to fit too many ideas into it. And uh, you know, credit to, to Ken for this idea and, and mentioning was that it's, that it's the struggle is what goes into the song? Do you try to send, send a specific message which will only connect with a few people and so you have to really be careful with exactly what words? Or are you trying to communicate a, an overarching theme? Uh, and he says, you know, nine times out of ten, what you'll do is you'll start cutting out words and sections that only appeal to say just you or just to one person. So the message remains, but it becomes slightly more, I suppose generic is the, uh, is the only word I can use because I can't think of a better one, uh, which seems a bit more insulting. But as, as you trim down, uh, you tend to widen the appeal of a song instinctively, so you can mm. speak to more people, um, but you lose the specificity of the language. So what you were talking about, uh, I think it, it leads into the whole death of the author thing because you're doing that, it, it widens out the appeal, but also makes it easier for people to interpret it in different ways. Mm. Um, and we've discussed a lot of, you know, how do you get the specific message you want to say across? Because I, I still believe in the primacy of the author a lot of the way. You know, I, I'm I'm happy if people interpret our songs or want to hear people are interpreting other songs, you know, in certain ways. Like, oh, I'm, I'm glad that resonated with you. But that's not what it's about. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, I know I put out to the world and stuff, that sort of thing, but you know it's not about that. But a lot of that comes from you massively overwrite, you really explain your point, and then you realize you've used a thousand words to say one, and you really need to cut it down. And bit by bit, the specific angles get chopped off till you've just got this central core. So originally it was uh, constant war is bad, war profiteering is, a, it feeds the uh, arms industry and creates a global cycle of strife. Unfortunately, I can't fit all that in. So eventually the message is, war is bad. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. It's just not what I was going for at the beginning.
2: So, I mean, how did you develop this kind of perspective? Because this is a, you know, that's a very reflective and, and thoughtful kind of discussion on how to write lyrics from somebody that, you know, just, just a few minutes ago was telling us that when they started listening to death metal, they had no interest in the lyrics. When did you switch to kind of paying attention to lyrics? Was it when you started writing them for the first time? Or was there kind of like a day you opened up the lyric book and all of a sudden you're like, Oh, Hmm.
1: Well, I think I've always paid attention. It's just that specifically when it comes to death metal as, as, as we play um, and the influences on us, I, I still. So um, one of the, the comments I read, cause I do read the comments sometimes about our album some guy thought the uh, the songs were, were too lazy and had too much hardcore influence, uh, which I thought was funny because not a single other member of the band listens to any hardcore, as far as I'm aware. <laughs> um, there's definitely some in the vocals in the sense of the lyrics and the delivery being, I try to be quite sharp and uh, understandable. Mm-hmm, I put mm-hmm. the effort in. I, I actually want to deliver them in a way you can, you can actually hear them while still keeping that sort of extremity and, and the actual emotion in it. Um, and there, there's a trade-off there between how understandable you can be and how, how hard you can go uh, while doing that but the only uh, hardcore influence in the band is um, comes from the lyrics and the vocals in that sense and so I've always had that and I've always appreciated metal bands who have a lyrical message like that a misery index would be a, a perfect example uh, fantastic band uh, hilarious that there's a couple of bits on the new album I do think have a bit of Misery Index tinge but Tim who wrote them uh, doesn't listen to Misery Index uh, I've, which is great um, we all have different angles and different blind spots, uh, means we, it makes it harder for us to rip people off, which is good mm. uh, Darkest Hour were, we're a huge uh, transitional band I think from the hardcore into metal for me, again um, John Henry is a great vocalist and a great lyricist, uh, Heaven Shall Burn a huge one, you know they were, a lot of these bands have that uh, quite poetic messaging rather than telling a fictional story kind of thing. Um, and that's always resonated with me. I, I've always said I can, I can enjoy a band despite its lyrics a lot of the time. Not always, sometimes they're just too dumb. But I particularly enjoy a band if I love the music and the lyrics. Um, mm. Even if not necessarily the message doesn't, uh, isn't one I agree with all the time. I don't have to 100% agree. Um, there are certain messages obviously we are not have to name exactly what where I will listen to it and go no thank you <laughs> um, but you know there, there's people out there who you know have uh, there's another um, name drop just one more to give credit Matt from Slug introduced me to Peregrine who are like an anarcho agrarian communist group whose lyrical thing is very much a whole return to the soil um, break down society back into smaller groups rather than nation states and all that sort of stuff
2: mm-hmm. mm.
1: I don't believe that at all. Uh, I, I think that that would cause more problems than it would solve. But they deliver it with passion and with intelligence. And I appreciate the the dedication there. But yeah, when it comes to lyrics in death metal, I have, I have found bands I've liked over the years. But the draw... T- it's funny because this band yeah, wasn't necessarily meant to play death metal when we started playing together. Um, it was a bit more mellow death metal when we started and then we just got tired of that because this is before anyone knew who we were um i think a couple of name changes before who people knew who we were to be honest and just bit by bit we've we've slid in this direction quite naturally uh, without particularly trying i mean th- this this latest album the plan after seekers uh which was a lot more a lot more tech deathy and lyrically a lot more cerebral head over heart um, was, oh, okay, the, the faceless have kind of toned down. We really like that sort of thing, but Tim can sing and I can sing and, you know, we'd, we'd maybe bring some clean vocals in there. That's right, something really sort of proggy and techy and that sort of uh, way of doing things. And that didn't happen. Uh, <laughs> it, uh, it didn't happen doubly funny. We got Chris, a new guitarist, and he joined during the Seekers cycle. And he comes from a, a prog background more than uh, most. And we assumed, obviously, him joining would push us in that direction, and it didn't. And everything they kept writing kept getting heavier. The songs, we allowed them to proceed in the way they felt like rather than trying to force them into a particular direction and ended up writing a death metal album. Oops.
0: Interesting. So you mentioned before um, that, of course, if you like the lyrics, uh, then you'll like the music even more. um, But there are some cases where perhaps you don't connect with the lyrics so much, but you can still enjoy uh you know the music as a product because of the delivery and things like that how about in terms of like lyrics that like you really don't vibe with like are there any kind of particular lyrical styles themes or practices that you find like either make a song sound dumb as you mentioned earlier or um i suppose just make it kind of not something that you could even bother listening to
1: i mostly get bored with slammy or brutal gore lyrics um not to say they, they can't be done well. Uh, I know um, Benighted have some incredibly disgusting stuff that's just done with such verve for the language mm. that it's hard not to, like I said with Cannibal Corpse, it's, it's hard not just be impressed by uh, the wordplay there. Um, similarly with uh, Aborted being a, an absolute classic, uh, his lyric can sometimes be a bit hit or miss, but when he hits, uh, he's got a great talent for making ridiculous-sounding words very catchy uh, and catching your ear with a, a hook <laughs> in a very brutal song, but mm. the stuff that sounds like uh, a lot of the quite misogynistic, aggressive—well, nothing wrong with aggression, but you know—in that in that sense, um, the stuff that makes me think you've never actually had a consensual relationship with a woman <clears> is usually <throat> a, a bad sign. Yeah, I'm not not a not a big fan of that. Um, I get that art is is controversial and nothing is necessarily off limits. You know, I've, I've watched some controversial films and read controversial books, and, and and there's nothing. You know, I'm not saying don't do it, uh, but it doesn't appeal to me at all. Obviously, that's so I listen to a lot of black metal. Actually, I do, and and Ed, uh, the drummer in the band, listens to a fair bit as well, but the rest of the band doesn't really. Um, and I remember having a conversation. This will this will make sense with the question, I promise. <laughs> um, about. That level of nihilism and pure hatred, but there's also obviously uh, a large crossover with uh, Nazism in black mm. metal. Um, I don't think that's controversial to say. It shouldn't. It shouldn't be controversial to say. Um, people complain about saying that. It's like, well, it, it it's is facts, a fact, isn't it? Is it? Is yeah, a fact. <laughs> yeah, there um, And it's and it's also sadly not just a black metal problem. You know, neo-folk, and there's you know huge parts of the Eastern European dance scene and stuff like that, you know, these things have been infiltrated by, uh, Nazism and white supremacy and all that sort of stuff, because it's a way of, of getting to people and getting the message to, to the mm. youth while sanitizing it, uh, which is, is again, and that's not a new thing either. It's just, you know, something, constant vigilance and all that, but we're talking about, you know, why is it acceptable for one man to say this and another band to say this and, sorry, no, unacceptable to say this, uh, I said, well, actually, um, I remember there's a, there's a, a Dimmu song, um, uh, rhymes Gifts of Grace," with "Murder the entire human race." And if you were to say that to someone completely out of context, that's essentially, you know, the the Unabomber's terrorist manifesto kind of thing, really. But then you said to another band, and then that lyric, or whatever, is like that's very clearly rooted in old school anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. And I said, what's the difference? Like, well, weirdly, it's okay to hate people if you're not too specific. <laughs> and that is a very strange realization to have as someone listening to Metal, that where do you draw the line as a person? Um, where, where do your values lie in expressing this? And I think, you know, everyone has to draw their own line. For me, it is a difference between expressing an emotion and expressing, let's say, an explicit intent. Mm-hmm. You know, if you are angry enough and you hate the world and you are that nihilistic, there's been some wonderful art that's come out of that, not just, not just music, but, you know, a- across the spectrum of art. If you are angry and blaming a specific racial group for the fact that you haven't done as well as you think you should in life then I'm starting to really question whether we shouldn't be keeping a closer eye on you because you start Mm. to express some stuff that leaks out into your real world actions and real world views. And it's Mm. just a little bit questionable, but it's a, it's a complicated issue. Um, So anything expressing that sort of racism and misogyny, these things exist, but I can find it interesting to explore them. Uh, a lot of bands explore these issues and and why they happen in that sense, not from a endorsement point of view, Mm. but as soon as you're expressing it as here's what I think, and here's what I think we should do about it. Well, okay. No, we've, we've crossed the line there. I thought you were just saying, you know, okay. Uh, races have been at war because mankind's uh, condition is war. And we find any stupid excuse based on color and creed or where you were born to kill each other, which is ridiculous. Um, hopefully one day we'll stop doing that instead you're now saying you're okay with that get in the bin sorry i've no i have no time for that anymore um and perhaps i've that's something i've adapted as i've gotten older um maybe i've gotten less tolerant um less tolerant thought, of
0: intolerance <laughs> yeah it's, it's the, par- <laughs> the paradox
1: of, the paradox of tolerance isn't it that's the, always the classic one um but it's all about consequences i think it's a bit of line. a
2: like, there's a thing in a metal fan's life where they start listening to all these songs about, you know, slaughtering everyone and murder, and then they find a band that isn't joking or is taking it seriously for the first time, and, like, kind of a veil comes down. Yeah. Like, first, like, no, no, they're all kidding. It's all just, like, a horror movie. And then, then you read an interview with one person who's like, no, I, I sincerely want to do all that. And you're like, oh, oh now I have to be ca- really careful about it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and... A lot of it is uh, so. a metal of that you could, as you said, you could do huge amounts of studying on this and, and draw loads of conclusions. Metal is a subculture, you know, very counterculture cultural that sort of thing. Um, attracts people who don't feel too comfortable in the mainstream a lot of the time, mm. but it also builds up that mythology around it. I remember when I was growing up, uh, the idea was, "Oh, metal fans uh, are a bit cooler." You know, we're not at all. Um, like that self-described prophecy there that doesn't actually hold up to scrutiny. Metal fans are the ones who are smarter. They'll help with the homework. No, <laughs> you you get you get a group of metal fans. They're on the same spectrum and, and bell curve, which you know I can use that term again, mm. as any other grouping of society. There'll be some smart people. There'll be some dumb people. There'll be me and the rest of them milling around in the middle, just trying to get on with life. Like being into metal does not actually make you special. Okay, <laughs> like I get I, I get this idea that a lot of us would nerds and, and geeks and we were outcasts and that sort of thing and and it gave us a sense of community and that is a good thing but when the community becomes defined by pushing people out by saying actually we're a bit we're actually a bit better than you a bit, bit more special um that way madness lies uh, because every community eventually starts to think that and they can't all be better and special than everyone else and just got to acknowledge that it's a different in aesthetics and taste and, you know, I've, let, I've that's led some people to realize that, you know, well, this band isn't, these band isn't real nihilists because they all live in nice houses because they've also got good day jobs. That doesn't mean that the, the emotions they're expressing are any less real. It just means they also exist in the real world. Mm. Um, just because so-and-so said they actually would like to murder someone doesn't make their lyrics about murdering people better. <laughs> it just means they might need a bit more therapy. Mm. Um uh, there was a specific one i can't remember the example now um but you get it with a lot of uh, you know blackmailers should all live in the woods and worship satan um but if they live in the woods they'd never make any music you'd never get to hear it so where do you do you not see how you know that there is some element of projecting the inner self that doesn't necessarily reflect all of who you are and i think people hmm. expect people to live it's like uh, it's like pro wrestling uh, that's the <laughs> way. Uh, People—they expecting people to live their gimmick, and when you realize that it's not all actually real, mm. um, it doesn't make the athleticism in pro wrestling any less. It doesn't make the emotions going into the metal any less. It just doesn't mean that you know, like I said, the guys who were imported aren't six-armed mutant doctors from a post-apocalyptic wasteland who are going to rearrange your insides. That's that's not who they are. They're just five guys with an interest in this particular sort of lyrical aesthetic, and they've thrown a lot of effort into it. Um, I don't Mm. think that lessens the impact of it.
2: So within this kind of bell curve that you're talking about, and this sort of metal world, do you feel when you write lyrics, you have to fit yourself within there? Have you ever kind of thrown away a lyric because you thought it didn't fit within that kind of metal style that is as broadly, vaguely defined as it is?
1: I don't think I've thrown anything away because it wasn't metal enough. the, the last track on the first album was um, by based on teilhard's uh, theory of the Omega point the the <sighs> he comes from a Christian background but the idea of a grand group mind uh, at the end of eternity that we're all evolving towards and it was actually it's actually quite a, a utopian theory and it's not actually that that metal in that sense but it can be made that way you know I, I, I don't necessarily think they're has to be a limit on what you write about in metal there is definitely a familiarity to the aesthetic i, I was I, I one of the previous podcasts I, of yours i listened to i remember one you asking about whether people could identify metal lyrics mm-hmm. on the page versus other genres um and i think uh and I shouldn't be using this because I think that they've basically started to disprove the whole bell curve theory <laughs> recently, but it's still a, it's a useful example for the moment Sure. Uh, to, to use that again. Yeah. I could, I could probably identify 90% metal lyrics in the middle of the bell curve, but there's stuff on either end that you really think, Oh, actually this, this, you know, crosses over with this, what this genre tends to talk about, or, you know, that person in this other genre, if you strip away, uh, Chelsea Wolf is a, is a huge thing in the metal scene. Uh, bless you um thank you <laughs> and i was listening to her recently because a friend of mine rob uh, reminded me what a big fan he is and how i actually quite like them through him and taking j- just reading the lyrics out of the music i can see why uh, she's crossed over with metal fans so well because the the worldview uh, and the lyricism stripped of context could have come from any number of metal songs in that mm. sense 100 um, i love chelsea wolf <laughs> yeah good yeah um <laughs> And, and, she, and I think she's been a fantastic gateway um, Not to say gateway That she's, she's in any way uh, simplistical She's a wonderful artist in her own right But she's a fantastic gateway for a lot of metal fans To listen to that and go Oh maybe there's worth in other genres Because mm. there is, because metal is not special It is unique um, But then again jazz is unique And you know, folk is unique And all these things In their essence um, Fulfill a role but there's also crossover between them and there's, and there's these little, you know, gateways where you can use one artist to get into another area.
2: Mm.
1: Um, I forgot the question entirely now. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Sorry, I think you answered
1: it. Yeah, yeah
0: you just you answered it. It just, just took a little while. It's, it's yeah. good.
1: Yeah, I do that. Like, Sorry, I, my brain runs on tangents and I'll, I'll get back there eventually, I promise.
0: It's good because you end oh, up, yeah. you know, answering questions we haven't asked yet. So, yeah, you know, yeah. you're, you're, us, you're, really.
2: you're ahead of us, literally, right?
0: Yeah, 100%. I mean, yeah, because you already mentioned earlier that, like, you know, the way that you view metal has changed a little bit over time. Is that reflected in your lyric writing process as well? Like, have you approached lyric writing differently as you've kind of progressed through your career?
1: In the sense that it's, it's hard to say because, you know, we, we only really started taking it seriously. We've, we've been playing together as a group for a long time now, uh, but it was just more of a, I was going to say, big fish, small fish in a small pond, to be honest. You know, we were a, a local band playing just, Fun music for a long time. And then we got a really nice uh, message from a guy who was using the name we had at the time. And he politely asked us to stop using it. Um, he was very polite about it, you know, entirely. Like it, it wasn't a cease and desist. It was very much, you know, causing some confusion, guys. I do have the name registered. Would you be, you know, willing to change your name? I'm sure there was an implied legal threat behind it, but uh, he approached us on a normal not not face-to-face but that just a normal level at first I mean, obviously we, we said yes because obviously a unique name benefits us as well and so when we changed to beyond grace we had to sit down in a local pub and said do we want to take this a bit more seriously now like I, I i can't guarantee you know we're gonna go anywhere with it but i i for one would like to take it a bit more seriously and, and, and not just act like a local band i would like to act like a viable band uh, growing up in manchester I saw a lot of bands who were more than happy to be local heroes and then they'd break up within six months, reform with almost the same lineup, play almost the same music, and play the same level of shows and just repeat that ad infinitum. Mm. And and I didn't want to do that. I, it just felt like it was achieving nothing really in the grand scheme of things. Um, so really about when we t- started taking it seriously uh, in the right run up to Seekers was when I started taking lyric writing seriously, most of all, I think. Um, I still kind of write in the same way I, I did then. That was only four years ago. Um, so it's not surprising that much has changed. I I, uh, I use this in another interview. I'm going to keep using it because I think it, it describes my process really well. Uh, I'm a lyrical magpie. I read a lot. I watch a lot of movies, a lot of TV, listen to a lot of music. Um, and although I try not to do it with music actually, because if you if you go, I think although you great artists steal and all that, I uh, try not to be influenced by other bands too much. Um, I will try and learn a little bit from of generic ideas when, when we're going through. Um, I hear a band do a structural twist or a change or write a song in a certain way. I think, why have we never done that? I don't want to steal riffs. I want to steal big ideas. Um, so you got lists of songs to do uh work on a third album now and i'm trying to work in a a switch between heavy riffs and a weird acoustic verse not hmm. singy you know like that it's getting hard to describe but a switch to quite aggressive acoustics and we've never done anything like that before and i can't remember where i picked that up again it was from another band and i went that's a great idea we've never done that right that's going in the ideas bucket um, for lyrics, it's, I'll, I'll be going through most of my books, uh, I've got shelves behind me and shelves over there and shelves upstairs are full of, of dog ears, uh, where I've found something I want to go back to later. Uh, I've, I've taken a note and noted things down. I'll be watching a movie and i think that's a great idea. And then I'll forget to note it down and have to come back to it a year later when I suddenly rewatch the movie again and go, Oh, I meant to write that down. I will steal that line, you know, tons of stuff from TV. It all just goes into, you know, usually it's uh, individual documents. I'll come up with a, a song title or I'll find a, a particular line that might be a song title and you know, sometimes it just makes it into the song it, it gets changed. And I've got, you know, I think 30 different ideas for the next album already taken from multiple different sources. And I'm just picking and choosing, stealing shiny lines and shiny ideas from books and movies. And sometimes they make it in wholesale and sometimes they get, adapted quite a bit and I, I lose track of where I've stolen from and they get mutated. Um, but my method is still, is still the same, just write randomly. I, I start, start writing songs, you know, without any music at all, just having ideas and put together. Mm-hmm. So when the guys come to me with something, you know, I'll be listening through, maybe we hit the chorus or uh, the focus is always intro chorus and ending at the start. Like I always, I always want every bit of the song to be, as hooky as possible. I don't want to be one of those bands who hits the chorus at 45 seconds and you can't remember what the verse was because, to be honest, they paid very little attention to it. The lyrics were generic. The riffs were just to get you to the chorus. It's that, I hate that writing. I used to love In Flames. Uh, was one of my favorite bands for a long time. And then as soon as their writing style shifted to... Sorry, guys. I've got to maximize airplay. Chorus must come in at 40 to 45 seconds. It must be repeated this many times. Uh, the riff in the verse can only be sort of a 10 seconds, you know, five, 10 seconds cycle. And you've got four lines. Before you hit the chorus, which, which tells you nothing about the song. Um, I've kind of fell out of love with them because of that. And a lot of people still do. It's fine. Just, it's just no longer for me. But when I'm first writing, what really catches me is that central hook and trying to, what's the message of this track going to be? What's the key imagery I'm going to build around? And you know, a lot of the time that is, that is the chorus, the big hook. Uh, because even though we're trying to be proggier these days, we still love a solid central hook you can really get your teeth into. Or it's the start of the end. You know, you've got to end on a strong line, a strong theme. You've got to start with something that grabs people's attention, and then you use the verses and the bridges to really sort of flesh out the ideas. I think then. So you you, you grab people from the start. Here is a statement, this is what this song is about. Here's some more nuance and some interesting wordplay the chorus really lifts up the the concept and you end with like an emphatic conclusion of some kind. Um, And I still do that. And I'll just be going through and writing stuff down all the time going, oh, that would make a fantastic chorus hook. I have not got a song for it, but hopefully we'll write something that, you know, fits that. And so when the guys bring me stuff and we'll work, because we we work together, but um, Tim and, and Chris now to an extent as well start things off by putting riffs together and then we all get together in the practice room or over Zoom and we start hammering out the structure of things, mm-hmm. because structure is structure and, and track order and having things repeat is, is very much in in my wheelhouse. I do a lot of the work on that. When 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 they bring me half finished songs, I'm like, okay, I've got an idea. I can see where this is going to go. Um, and doing that, I can also go, I've got something for this. I think this would work really well in this section. I have to have to you know tweak the layout of the words a bit and the delivery, uh, which is sad because one of my favorite things has always been seeing bands in progress when they have those whiteboards of uh, terrible and hilarious working song titles Um, and we do have that but not for very long Uh, we've got a list we've got a list of working song titles for songs we've never used because we think it's funny and then those last about two weeks when a song actually is being created because within about two weeks I've gone sorry guys I've got the final title already Mm. Mm. Um, so we never get to do that whole you know hilarious song title uh, reveal quite sad (laughs)
0: So, uh, yeah, the the next thing I suppose we should uh, start talking about is as you've kind of transitioned to it quite nicely is a more specific discussion of your lyrics. So um, the first question we had is reasonably broad, um, because in terms of both music and lyrics, we noted a large gap between your first and second album. Although, you know, you say you approach them quite similarly and both are clearly metal and with distinct topics of, you know, humans, morality and choice featuring in both. Um, The pace and the rhythms are quite distinct, um, as is the way you approach the vocals, it seems. So the first album has songs that muse a bit more, um, you know, metaphorically or talk about transcendence. And a number of tracks, um, you know, exist that discuss, uh, you know, what appear to be gods and other entities, whereas new album is more explicit in its themes and seems very grounded in the here and now. Um, Yeah. Was this like a conscious shift for you? And and if so, what um, prompted that shift in focus?
1: Uh, no not at all conscious actually uh, mm. I mean you're you're entirely right in the assessment that I said the first album um, not to downplay the emotion that went into it there's it's definitely still uh, quite personal in that sense but it was more about you know high intelligence sort of cerebral topics you know I was trying to possibly overthink things I, I overthink everything um, there are a few hints on the first album uh, which connect to this one uh, Oracle is actually Oracle and acolytes are a bit more political than people give them credit for. Don't quite realise. Um, hmm. Oh God, what's the, what's the name of the song now? See, I'm forgetting the names of my own songs at this point. It's it's far too early in the morning. Um, <laughs> Altars of, Alters of Avarice was inspired by a trip to Las Vegas, and obviously it's probably the most explicitly political song on there. <clears throat> but um, you you definitely called it right when you say it was more. It was more high concept, I'd say. I, you know, there's a lot more metaphor and, and hiding. Uh, what the message and meaning was behind a bit of smoke and mirrors and, 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 and flashy CGI in that sense, the new one wasn't necessarily meant to go the way it went. That was just, again, I say I've, I I I constantly just writing ideas and themes and lyrics and, you know, stealing lines down. And when it came to it, this was just what came naturally. Uh, Chris, explicitly at one point asked me if it was a political album and I said no and then he read some lyrics back to me and I went, <laughs> okay, yes yes it is I, <laughs> you, when you're so close to it you can't see the wood for the trees, I, for, for me it's a very personal album, it's a very angry and frustrating, quite a sad album I think actually um, hmm. a lot of what I'm saying is frustration and fear and guilt about the way of the world about my own actions or inactions in it And that's what i thought i was writing about uh turns out i was writing an angry political manifesto about how fucked my country is um but didn't realize it until chris pointed out the title track to me and and i was like oh yeah no this is this is actually completely this is current events filtered through my psyche isn't it I've, i've not really been paying attention to what i've been writing so much um so it's it's accidentally political and still very personal uh, I think the next album is probably going to go the same way, uh, just because mm. I've still got a lot to say in that area. Mm. I'm just a little, I'm just a little more aware of it now. Um, yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be interesting. I'm very, okay, very so- proud of how this one turned out, but kind of surprised.
2: Mm. We're going to have to change our next question, though. because we, we kind of assumed that there's a bit more um, kind of conscious. Intent in making this album as political as it was, uh, but you didn't. So, was the were the lyrics entirely finalized when uh, your other band member asked you if it's political, and you kind of realized it was?
1: It wasn't like... finalized, mm. but they were they were well on the way. You know, mm. I, I so the other guys don't uh, have an input in my lyrics, really. Uh, I don't think I've ever I don't think they have ever asked me to change anything or do anything. Uh, I occasionally ask them for help with uh, to say the shaping of a line. It's like I can't quite get what I want to say to fit into this area. Uh, can you guys help? And their response is usually no. Um, but I, I do always run them past them because, you know, collectively we are a, a group mind. And I don't want to be saying anything that doesn't represent what they think and feel.
0: Mm. Thankfully,
1: we're all, we're all generally of, of a similar mindset, really. The guy just trusts me to be the, the mouthpiece of the band. Um, hence why I'm here doing the interview today. Um, <laughs> uh, try not to say anything too terrible. but it definitely wasn't it wasn't planned and once I'd realized what I'd been writing I definitely had to to run it past the guy and say it was okay I think the only only one we tried to change the only one I tried to change drastically um, actually it's not true there there were two that changed uh, really drastically one uh, Dark Forest Doctor in the Opener originally was dark forest doctrine there's a, there's a video out there somewhere where i was playing it very early on um we're a bit scrappy and it doesn't help that ed breaks one of his kick pedals partway through the song we had to finish oh up no. we had to play the entire set with a broken kick pedal so that wasn't it's not the great it's not the greatest, greatest video but the evidence out there that that song exists in this proto form quite early on um, i got that about 70 percent finish and couldn't find the extra 30 percent. just couldn't couldn't get it uh, so I started writing different lyrics entirely, with a different ending chant and different different hooks, and um, we tried that out a couple of times, and then circled back to Dark Forest simply because n- it didn't feel as natural. Clearly, I was trying to r- I was trying to write something in the vein of everything else, rather than just letting myself write whatever I needed to. Um, the difference between you know purposely trying to write a political one and writing something that accidentally turns out politically because that's where your headspace mm. is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the only other one that changed drastically was Persona Non Grata, simply because that song, when we started writing it, was like a three and a half minute tech death song. And then we finished it and it was really, really generic. It was, uh, it was something we would have written for the first album and probably rejected then as well for not being good enough. So we changed a bit and then the ripple of that was the next bit I had to change and the ripple from that changed the next bit. I think we kept one riff, which is the first riff in the bridge. And now it's this six-minute sort of prog emulation track with spoken word verses and, and interesting jazzy drumming parts. So unsurprisingly, what lyrics I had and I can't remember what they are now. Um, they weren't what we ended up with. Uh, got binned because the song transformed into something entirely different, and they no longer fit. They no longer fit with the uh, the themes and the, and the feel of it. Mm.
0: Hmm. interesting that you mentioned that um you know there can be some difficulty involved in like trying actively to write something political because of course if you've heard our podcast before you'd know that this is a topic that's come up several times with people saying that like although they can you know write songs that may be unintentionally political or have political applications trying to create a song with like an explicit political message can be very challenging like for instance like uh, we've spoken to Freddie Lim of Thonic, who obviously writes very political songs. But even mm. he said that like when he tries to write a song that has a specific overt political message, it often doesn't come across as well or it doesn't yeah, come out as naturally, you know, very much kind of the same idea that you just talked about. So, yeah, I suppose like I'm interested in like how this is for you, like, you know, how did you manage to write an album that does have like, you know, very apparent like political application? Um, And is, you know, also very personal in a way that, you know, we often don't see in a lot of metal music, given, again, that's another talking point that we hear very commonly is this kind of dichotomy between people that will say either, yes, my lyrics are deeply personal or no, my lyrics have nothing to do with me as an individual, you know. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I I just wondered what your take was on this, like, you know, how you've approached it given that difficulty.
1: So first off, it was really interesting uh, that Freddie Lim said that, considering he's he's an active politician as well. Yeah, you think yeah. you think if yeah. anyone could uh, naturally work political statements into his lyrics, it would be him. But then again, I guess at some point, it is art. It is not a political polemic. It is not a political manifesto. Even um, so, Dawn Raid, who who are on the same label as, as uh, a wonderful band, fantastic band so outspoken with their politics but you actually read the lyrics they are still couched in revolutionary metaphor and storytelling and i think i think the reason for that is because humans are storytelling creatures um mm. for me I, I i i've said this a few times i'm not trying to tell you how to think or how to act it is very personal this is these are my feelings about circumstances it's my emotions my rage my frustration uh and my my sense of guilt about my own actions or inactions fueling all this if that connects with you great but i'm i'm definitely not telling you how to live your life um i mean it's great if it connects uh, as a band we always say we write for an audience of five really both musically and lyrically uh, and it's just fantastic that it does connect with people mm. um we never thought it would really because we're so Insular with the five of us, we're never thinking, How is an audience going to react to this? It's the five of us in a room going, Yeah, do that again. I liked that. Do, do that when, when our ears perk up, and then hopefully it reaches the people. Same with the lyrics. And I've got to give credit to a lot of the things I was, again, raised on. Uh, I, I credit, I credit, credit, too. I think a lot of uh, the TV. I was raised on, funny enough, you know, everyone decries the influence of TV, but there's a lot of Red Dwarf and Blackadder influence, uh, okay. funnily enough. Um, I don't know if you've seen the video to Factions, uh, which gets pretty pretty violent. Uh, the pitch for that originally was Reservoir Dogs meets Red Dwarf. Now, obviously, it came out a lot more Reservoir Dogs, uh, but it actually came out a lot darker than any of us intended. Okay. It was all my idea, and when I saw the final cut i was a little bit shocked myself um these are fictional stories that you can really enjoy on a a comedic uh level but actually have a huge amount to say going on under the surface Uh, and it was was that sort of thing that i think really inspired me whether consciously or, or subliminally you're telling stories about people and a lot of time you're telling stories about yourself, you know, the, the protagonist, the antagonist, the uh, the second uh, grip uh, is, is you, you know, it's, it's impossible to not put yourself into these stories. And once you're invested in them, the message is embedded in the medium. In that sense, you're not explicitly trying to say, do this, do that, avoid this, this is bad. You are expressing your own feelings putting yourself through a character putting yourself just through a song um and if you're honest the message is clear in that sense i, I know it sounds a bit wishy-washy it's uh it's it despite talking about lyrics it's hard to put into words surprisingly mm. um ironically perhaps um i one of the so uh we did a we did a our live comeback show which was was recorded and streamed online um and just to point out that was our first show in 20 months and just part way through prepping for it we realized recording for posterity our first show in sort of 20 months it's probably a terrible idea but we're committed now so let's just go with it um we've played a show since then where we were clearly better um so perhaps we should have done some warm-up shows but we were so glad to be back on stage i think you can just tell that in the in the actual footage um the intro to that is from a bit of Fry and Laurie, who again hugely influential um a a series i can i can watch again and again again for just incredibly how funny but how actually angry they were i think a lot of the best comedy comes from from anger pick a comedy with the way of the world you know you're, you're laughing because you'd cry otherwise or you're laughing because you'd probably murder someone if you didn't, because you've reached that level of frustration with, this is absurd, and I must confront the absurdity through humor, or I must confront the absurdity of the world through music, because it's the only way I have to process these feelings. And I know people complain that, you know, oh, in comedy you can't do this, and and everything's too woke these days. There is a, a Fry and Laurie sketch where they lay into Margaret Thatcher on Primetime BBC with some incredibly vicious language. Like they despise her, everything she's doing to the country, everything she stands for. What's funny is that, in some ways, the the people on say generally the right wing who are complaining that you can't do all this, that you couldn't do that today, if you legitimately call out a politician to their camera that aggressively, your show will be taken off the air. Um, just a fascinating insight into we're funny people and we're putting a lot of effort into these sketches but under the surface we are angry okay we are not happy with the way of the world and this is our way of processing that and hopefully communicating it um and i think a lot of that fed into the lyrics and the (sighs) message if that's the, the right word for it of the album it was just putting things down on paper and processing them through the songs um and then I, you know, looking back, it, I think there's still some bits where I could have improved. I should have used less explicit language here or more explicit language there. You're, you're always your own worst critic. But I, I, I huge credit to the satirists and comedians and writers who you know, I grew up watching, who unbeknownst to, to me and unbeknownst to them were, were teaching me how to be honest whilst being creative with it, I think.
2: So did this affect the way that you, this kind of change of perspective and this, this you know, channeling this kind of anger changed the way that you approached the lyrics, even if like consciously or unconsciously? Like one thing we noticed um, is that on your first album, there's a lot of the use of the singular I uh, and we kind of happen about the same amount. But on the new album, uh, it's almost exclusively we with only two instances of I. Were you moving to a kind of like collective viewpoint here? Or is, is this something that, just kind of happened as well.
1: Well, I hadn't noticed that. So no, that was that was purely by accident. Where were the two instances of I? I'm really, I'm really, really interested now. Where were the two instances of I?
0: I wrote yeah. it down somewhere. i just got to check my notes.
1: That's <laughs> all right. I'll, I'll carry on while you look. Yeah, that, yeah, no, yeah. wow, that's that's yeah. interesting. I, did, I didn't, I did not know that. Huh? It takes me a minute to process that. Uh, so no, obviously, it wasn't conscious by by any means. <laughs> um, that's, that's... Oh, persona
0: non grata. In the first. Um, stanza if you like <laughs> yeah first they came uh, for the weakest and i was silent uh then they came for this strong uh, the two.
1: Oh, okay um so even better that you said that i thought it might be there um that's not even me right uh, that, that's obviously the, that, uh... that's, <laughs> yeah. that's that's the that's uh the niemöller um mm. quote that i've slightly bastardized um because obviously that's one of the most powerful pieces of writing uh quite possibly in history i think um and i'm far from the only person, far from the only metal band, actually, to, to take from that. Um, you know, it's, it's been a very inspirational piece of writing for, for many years. So, strictly speaking, uh, I use we exclusively on the album, apart from when I'm essentially misquoting. <laughs> sorry, misquoting. <laughs> I, yeah. I'm using someone else's lines. That's interesting. I hadn't, I hadn't realized <laughs> that. I suppose there is... Um, obviously, I'm, obviously, I am only speaking from my perspective, so there's still the I in there implicitly. Mm-hmm. But I'm definitely associating myself with the, the greater we. The we includes me in that sense. That's really interesting. I'd, yeah. So I, I think you can see the shift, I said unconsciously, from, like what I said, you know, high-minded philosophical ideas on the first one, which you know, I was very interested in. But this, it was much more, the first arm is much more considered. It's, it's what am I interested in? What am I trying to say? With the second album is just stuff pouring out onto the page it's, it's just you know knife in the chest bone cut it open what pours out and then sort of rearranging that into a metaphor into into a, into a song let's be honest just into a song because because songs have um I, I was a mediocre poet uh, i went through university i did an english and philosophy degree at university and I, remember I did a poetry module and i got ripped apart basically by the the poet in residence um it's quite um, disheartening, actually. At the time, I, I thought I was terrible, um, but it turns out I'm not a poet at all. I don't <laughs> actually. I, 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 I'm very much. I don't understand poetry. Um, if I'm going to be honest, I don't understand what how you take prose and turn into poetry. What the difference is. I don't understand why line breaks work where they do. Why some people choose them. It is uh, for someone who writes lyrics. I can fully admit. I just don't understand poetry. I, I will occasionally appreciate a poem because it connects with me, but I can't write it. I don't know how that works. Um, and I know a couple of friends who are, who are, who are writers of, of novel stuff, and I can't do that. I might one day publish a collection of short stories I've been working on bit by bit in the same way I do my lyrics of just writing down titles and putting bits and pieces in. But it turns out what I do best, arguably, uh, depending on who you talk to, is is lyrics for songs because song writing is is not necessarily just a poem it's not necessarily just prose set to music um that's where i kind of found my wheelhouse but clearly i was not aware of quite what i was doing which i think is a good thing <laughs> actually in honesty i'm I'm totally fine with that hadn't realized i'm just in my head while i'm chatting to you, I'm, I'm looking back at some of the lyrics and thinking actually yeah it, mm. it's and i don't think i'm trying to hide myself behind the we there which is is always a temptation you know authors writers who don't want to be who want to express themselves but are afraid of being too open you know hide themselves in their characters or hide themselves behind you absolutely i mean i
0: was going to ask that exact question like is that you know a way of depersonalizing but as you've said you know that obviously isn't the case right because you had a very personal approach to this
1: yeah i think what i'm doing um and i may change my mind about this because obviously if this is a realization i've only just come to now is associating myself with the greater we. I am you, you are me. There isn't that much difference between us, really. Like I said earlier, um, I'm okay if people interpret certain songs to, to mean something to them, but I know what I was trying to say. Um, I know what I mean and I know who I am. But I think that perhaps the use of the we there is is not consciously, but unconsciously designed to. Put myself in your shoes and you in mine, to, to actually say that you know this is a almost a universal concept, in that mm. sense. I That's very interesting. I'm gonna have to spend some time thinking about that. I had not <laughs> realized at all I'd done that.
0: Is it to do with like the I suppose like expansive impact of the topics that you're addressing? Like you know in that they don't just apply to like an individual, but rather like they do apply to large groups of people. They are affecting large groups of people. Is that
1: it's definitely part of it because mm. um, I think the, the the title track chorus "We Are the Blinded, Led by the Blind" is obviously the, one of the big one of the biggest whees in yeah. the uh, entire album, really. And that is a that is a moment where I was explicitly talking to an unnamed audience in a sense. I, I was getting something off my chest to anyone who would listen. Which at the time was just the guys in the room with me, <laughs> um, but hopefully is <laughs> as more people now. It's interesting. There's a there's a real contradiction inherent in the idea that, as I said, we, we only really write for ourselves. Um, I, I was always shocked that Prosthetic took a chance on us because I, I don't necessarily know if we are a universal band in the sense of, you know, you'll be able to market us to absolutely everybody and we'll make that connection. Right. Because we purposefully chose to write Death Metal, which already, you know, thins our fan base. And then death metal that isn't specifically old school or tech, so you know we're, we're not necessarily leaning too hard into one of the genres where we could get a distinct fan base. The proggy stuff is all about making it interesting for ourselves. Um, you may have noticed the new album is a lot less linear than the first one. No, there was a lot more linear than the first one. Um, we still have the big hooks and the themes, mm-hmm. but we tried not to repeat ourselves as much. Uh, I, I don't think there's an instance where we play a single riff exactly the same the second time around. Because, and, and Ed loves uh, pointing this out, that that's that's kind of our, our trick. Um, but it's not, because it comes naturally. Mm. The first verse, will play the verse riff, and the second verse riff will be slightly tweaked, because we don't just want to cut and paste it the second time around. We want to do a different version, or we want it to lead into a third version of the riff. We, we iterate on riffs all the time. Which, again, makes it a little harder for people to marketers because it's not as you know songwriting isn't as simple and direct in that sense um and the same with the lyrics you know it's a it's a it, it kind of ghettoizes us as, as a political band if, if we're not careful in that sense and some people won't listen to those sorts of bands which is it's fine it's personal choice but to say that we only write for ourselves and then i've written a song I've written an album full of full of we full of statements of, of mm. you know solidarity and, and and clash consciousness and all that sort of thing uh, yeah, that's quite funny. Uh, that it's, it's again, it wasn't conscious. It's class conscious, but it's not a conscious effort Mm-mm. to appeal to people. Like I said, it was never meant to be a political polemic. I wasn't meant to be standing up and, you know, standing up at the next uh, next group meeting and telling everyone, here's my philosophy, this is what we should do. It was, it was all very much, this is what I'm feeling in the moment. Uh, I want to tell you a story with it and give you imagery and... Now, I used a lot of archetypal imagery, it made its way into the album art as well, because uh, I think uh, I've always been a bit... I was, God, we're going to do another tangent here, but I promise it'll be a good one. Um, <laughs> I, wh- one thing I've always loved is uh, Jung's theory of the collective unconscious, not in the sense where people generally take it, and which, which he actually took it, which is like he had this idea that it was this sort of free-floating mass almost everyone connected to, which is just pseudoscientific nonsense. Um, but the idea that our evolutionary and our biological experiences shape the way we think our bodies are a certain way because we you know evolved as biped and sort of stuff Um, it's not surprising that we're afraid of you know things you know snakes and spiders things that could poison us and then those become the enemies in our myths if you know what i mean Mm. because those are what we were afraid of mm. uh, you know we have the archetypal figure of the warrior figure the mother figure all these sorts of things they're our collective unconscious not in the sense that we all share a connection to something but because human beings are all wired in quite a similar way um, and I, I've tried to use a lot of that because simply because in lyrics obviously you, only have, you have limited space so if I can draw on someone else's established imagery or an archetype people recognize uh, it saves me a lot of time and effort uh, to communicate something, going, okay, pe- this is established, people know this, I'll steal that. It means I can say three lines in one because people kind of know what that means, and I can then expand upon it in the next line, space like that. Um, yeah, there's a, wow, there's a, a real, perhaps, perhaps it's not a contradiction, I don't know, a but a semi-contradiction between the idea that I've written this purely for myself, but in language which is designed for a, a large audience. Yeah. Speaking of that well, I mean, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Jess.
0: I was going to say, in, in line with that, like the other pattern that we observed um, in terms of, you know, pronominal choice is the like consistent use of you across both albums, because this often appears alongside, you know, rhetorical questions like, you know, so, what are you willing to sacrifice? What are you willing to offer for a glimpse of the future? And who are you to call us enemy? Um, what gives you the right to such cruelty? You know, does this also kind of like play into that um, kind of effect of? Um, I suppose, communicating with an audience or having the audience, like, interact with the content of uh, the lyrics, like, whilst, I suppose, also, at the same time as you say, like, communicating a message or an idea that you yourself want to express?
1: I think, um, as is often the case, if I'm I'm not going too far with this, I think a lot of the rhetorical questions are probably aimed at myself, Mm. in that sense. so there, there is some distancing there, but you know, it, it is a dialogue with myself. I, one of my favorite lines, which I stole pretty much wholesale, um, is stolen from The Handmaid's Tale. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's actually it's in, it's from the book, but it's actually in the TV series as well. Uh, Aunt Lydia talks about uh, women pre-Gilead having the freedom to, there are two types of freedom, there's freedom to and freedom from, and pre-Gilead mm-hmm. they had the freedom to, but it came with all these horrible risks and it wasn't worth it. And now they've given you freedom from, which is the classic dictatorial tactic of, this is for your own good. Um, and then it falls onto a line which is stolen from um, Star Trek. Uh, obviously, it's a, it's, it predates Star Trek. It's uh, the good of the many, but in this case, it was the good of the many or the greed of the few. It was uh, mm. juxtaposing those ideas. But the freedom from, freedom to is, um, so what will you choose, the freedom from or freedom to, fully in dialogue with myself at that point. That's the, and I think probably a lot of those questions are that way. Like I said, um, you pointed out that that first appeared, that trick in Oracle, I think, on the first album. So clearly it's something I've taken a liking to, but I haven't noticed before. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's amazing. So I've, I've always tried to not repeat myself too much. There's definitely some themes, uh, our Kingdom Undone, It's the first time where I've explicitly tried to repeat some of them because the title track uses references that refer to the previous tracks, not necessarily explicitly, but like, say, Hivemind was inspired by a meeting with uh, a member of the Quiverful cult uh, Mm -hmm. on a plane journey once. I've recited this story a few times, but he was a fascinating character, quite worrying, really. (laughs) Um, And I was vaguely aware of what they were, and it was only... While talking to, him, I suddenly realised he was part of this movement, and then went on to research them, and it was it was it's a crazy, crazy thing. Um, and the Hive Mind video uh, takes a lot of that and, and uses some interesting stuff from their imagery and other stuff like that. But that's also got a lot of Handmaid's Tale in it because the two go pretty much hand in hand, really. Uh, and then obviously there's Handmaid's Tale references in Kingdom, which refer back to that, and there's other references from, say, a, a book-inspired song four or five. Uh, I'll make a little reference to that book four or five in the title track later because it, it's it's a that's a close to a manifesto tying the meaning of the entire album together. If anything, um, but one thing I, as I said, what I've tried not to do is is repeat myself. Like I've always been a big fan of, and this is gonna sound so so bad, but I'm gonna say it anyway. Uh, so I've always been a big fan of Dark Tranquillity, but Mikkel Stan of Dark Tranquillity, fantastic vocalist. Um, you could transplant a lot of his lines from any of his songs to any of his other songs. He delivers, he has a certain way of delivering lines in certain couplets and in certain timings that as long as the song was in a similar, in the right sort of tempo, you could just take a verse wholesale and just switch them out and they would fit because Mm -hmm. he, that's just how he writes. And after a while, as a bigger fan I am, I really started to notice how interchangeable his delivery was, and he's a fantastic vocalist. He's got a clean voice and he's got such a distinctive screaming voice. And it was just a slightly disappointing realization that he'd got stuck into a pattern, a rote pattern of of doing things that way. Um, So one thing I really tried to do on the new one is play around more with my rhyme schemes and my delivery so our, our drummer, Ed, is one of my favorite uh, people in the world, but he's a fantastic drummer. We got him from a prog and jazz background, um, which means what he does is he doesn't write beats, really. He actually writes full parts that fit the song. Like, if I can hear him play doing soundcheck or whatever, or just just messing around, I know what song he's playing because he's not just playing a fast beat at 180 ppm. He's playing quite a musical pattern. and Like, I can hear the riff. You. You're accessing bits in the riff that they do there. I can hear the the cycles of it. I know what song you're playing instantly because you've actually written an interesting drum pattern that that you know is is unique to that song. And so I tried to do something similar with the the vocals and the lyrics. You know, I I wanted to make sure you couldn't just take lines from this track and, and move them onto this one with only the minor tweaks. You know, I want to write to the parts, I want to do a lot more with I want to break the rhyme scheme. I didn't want to do ABAB all the time. Um, One thing I learned from listening to a lot of uh, hip hop over the years is you can trick. uh, So the rhythm is the melody. I know a lot of people talk about how uh, metal vocals are quite rhythmic and percussive, really. I'm I'm, I'm a percussive instrument more than a a melodic instrument in a lot of ways. Um, And a lot of that you take from rap because they are incredibly, wordsmithing is, is the key there, you know. Um, a lot you can set some quite simple beats and change a song drastically by where you put the rhymes where you put the images where you, uh, i learned a lot about half rhymes and tricking people into thinking they've heard something there's a lot more of that mm-hmm. on the new album um and they and you know listening to i do listen to a fair bit of of, of that sort of stuff of uh sort of the coup with uh, boots riley and um lp and killer mike and run the jewels who are mm-hmm. fantastic individually and together learning a lot of cool stuff from listening to that, when you realize that they've tricked you into hearing a rhyme that wasn't there, or they've made a hook by breaking your expectations, they'll set up a certain rhyme scheme and then not deliver on it. And that grabs your brain because your brain is expecting something, the, the unexpected nature of they didn't finish the rhyme scheme, they went somewhere else, they extended the line or shortened it. I now remember that because it didn't follow my expectations and it's, it's, it's lots of clever stuff like that I've been trying to do, and I mean, no, I'm in nowhere on their level by any means, but I'm, I'm working on it, you know, I'm <laughs> trying to break my own patterns, uh, so what I'll have to use fewer rhetorical questions on the next album, <laughs> because apparently that, that's been my thing. Had Again, hadn't noticed.
2: Actually, you covered a lot of things that we wanted to uh, ask you about, like we were going to ask you about rhyme and alliteration, because you do have, we did notice uh, a lot of it, we even noticed uh, some lines like unwanted and welcome, untouchable and clean, persona non grata and human obscene that do alliteration and rhyme together. Uh, so you know these these things are coming up. But I did want to double back on just one of the things that you were covering there, which is, and actually it's come up a few times in this interview already, uh, is that your incorporation of quotes from other sources and ideas that you've kind of gone over before. Uh, like uh, you mentioned from *The Handmaid's Tale*, uh, *Star Trek*. There's something you do on this album that no one we've talked to has done, which is incorporate audio clips from other places. Uh, like you have uh, Obama talking about trickle-down economics. One of them, uh, "Democracy in Darkness" is the Washington Post headline. And I read an interview uh, that you did where you talked about how you had a Rick and Morty line uh, monument to compromise. And I actually went and found that, and it's in a completely different really context. I don't think like I'm. I was shocked that you kind of just came out and said you had a Rick and Morty quote because no one would have ever noticed it. Like when I when I, I was looking for like something you know, but it's just it's a it's a, a line in the show that that doesn't relate to the context using it, but it is there. Um, and I'm just wondering, like, in some ways, this kind of felt like what we do for our jobs—academic writing—that we're drawing all these sources diversely to create an argument uh, that is a, a supposed to be, you know, original and build on it. But was there any hesitation in drawing on these sources? Like, is there ever a struggle to take what is "quote unquote" someone else's words and make them your own? Like, when you when you sing them as yourself?
1: So there's, there's two levels uh, to this one. Um... Uh, by the way, thank you for spotting the Rick and Morty quote. Um, what, what's hilarious about uh, that? so it's in Kingdom. A, I mean, first of all, it is a fantastic line. I know it's in different context in the show, but a monument to compromise, mm. uh, that is that is a golden line. That is so good on so many levels. I honestly think that, uh, which is why I stole it. Um, <laughs> but that that song has, the first, the first third of it has quotes from T.S. Eliot and Yeats in it. Mm-hmm. The middle section has, you know, Hamay's Tale and that sort of stuff. And then it ends with uh, Rick and Morty's, is is one of the. It's not quite the last line, but it's pretty close to one of the final lines. Mm. Um, Yeah, that song is a perfect example of how, like I said, lyrical Mm magpieism is me going through and grabbing stuff and then realizing once you've pulled out of context, the words are strong and you can fit them all together in this little jigsaw of of ideas, which, you know, aren't my own, but can be used to represent what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. Like I said, um, This is How the World Will End by Elliot. Everyone knows that line now uh and immediately sets up the, the tone for what i'm saying and says more than i could in i could have said you know 10 more lines trying to explain that concept but just stealing that gives a lot of context to people already so i can now say more that i couldn't have done otherwise um as regards to the the clips uh that was an idea i had early on i'm going to take credit for it uh because uh, full credit to the guys because the guys are most of the music writing but i'm going to take credit for the clips um well, I'm going to take credit for the idea. Uh, actually finding the clips, uh, Chris, our guitarist was incredibly uh, useful in that he, he, I was kind of snowed under with work and writing and other stuff. And I was saying, right, well, we need to find some stuff for these areas. Um, and the Obama one was because it's very hard to find anyone talking about trickle line economics in a way that's interesting. It's not a particularly interesting topic. Um, Interestingly, we three of the quotes we use on the album are from Americans uh, rather mm. than, than British mm-hmm. uh, quotes. I think mostly because America has a history of recording everything and everything being online and cinematic. It, it's a lot easier to find American quotes about things than it is British ones. Um, I wanted a Hannah Arendt uh, quote in there that fit a couple of things, because obviously, you know, she's very influential and there's a lot of stuff that refers to her ideas on the, the album. But again, not that many, well, there are some recordings of her, but they're not always that clear. And a lot of them are in German, which uh, didn't necessarily help the message I was trying to convey, except perhaps in Germany. Um, there was no real pushback or no difficulty with the the quotes. The guys were all very on board with that, which I was, I was surprised by. Um, well, maybe I shouldn't have been because we're, we're, we're such good friends and so close now that we're we're on a similar wavelength. So when we have ideas, which we might think are outlandish, usually you know, everyone else is, is willing to consider them. This is the Obama one, the, the one in factions, uh, full credit to Chris for finding, uh, as an ex-member of the Westboro Baptist Church, talking about uh, her experiences both in and then leaving the church. Uh, if you ever get to see, if you can uh, see and listen to her talk, please do, it is incredibly eye-opening, I think, uh, to see it from a, a ground level perspective in that sense. The Churchill one, uh, it's fantastic because Churchill is such a, a, a divisive figure for clear reasons. Um, interesting that he's he's been co-opted by the right wing over here, despite the fact that he was incredibly pro-EU, because this was a man who had lived through a world war and didn't want to see it happen again, uh, and thought the best way to do that was by joining countries together rather than breaking them apart. But on top of that, um, while he was keen on that, he didn't like people of certain skin colors being treated as equally as others. And that sort of paternalistic racism of, okay, they're people, but, you know, we bought them civilization kind of ideas. Like, oh. Um, so we thought he was a fantastic use for a song like Persona Non Grata, which mm. is, you know, the uh, unwanted, unwelcome, untouchable, which is a Indian caste sort of thing. And he was, you know, not particularly great when it came to India. Uh, we thought he was a great one to use for that because another message of the song is to consider your history and not, and not be blinded by it. And he's a, a person who has become you know he's he's the nodding dog if you know that reference you know Churchill, the the, the oh yes nodding dog um weds is looking at me like i'm a moron no uh, i I, I have no idea what that sense. reference is sorry it was um, that, that i'm just confused so it's, That's it's, confusion. it's 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 uh it's an insurance company uh, and there's oh. a, a jolly a dog is their mascot and the genius is called churchill and it's become the sort of the sanitized almost happy-go-lucky version of churchill when in fact you know a bit of a racist For his time, in some ways, progressive and in some ways, very much not. You know, he's a complicated figure. They all are Uh, famously, although he was our wartime leader, he was terrible at military tactics. Uh, People gloss over this fact, Um, but apparently everything he suggested, the generals just rejected because it would have got everyone killed. Um, But he's become a historical mythological figure. We thought it was really interesting to use him for that particular song because the reality is not the same as the myth.
2: He sells um, car. They have a, there's a car insurance ad that uses him as a mascot yeah, now. Uh, but he's a dog. Uh,
1: yes. Uh, okay. and that That's right. I understood that correctly. We, then that's weird. Yeah, okay. That's emblematic <laughs> of how we how we sanitize our historical figures in mm. that sense. You know, he's now friendly. He's the image of good old Britishness. He's a British bulldog. He's friendly. He's 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 a bit uh, you know matey and that sort of stuff. Well, actually, no, he wasn't. He was a complex figure mm. with both good and bad points. And whitewashing history helps no one uh which is you know a big chunk of what persona non grata is about in some ways uh as well as you know personal responsibility and the refusal of, you know not letting history repeat because you know if we whitewash it we just make the same mistakes
2: mm-hmm.
1: and then obviously um in in Fearmonger we had Edward r murrow who is a legend and I think that was the first one we first one we found and used because the, the man is is a legend uh that particular quote fit almost perfectly in the the section we needed I need to just slightly chop and change the 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 strength of delivery Mm -hmm. the guys were all on board uh with using direct quotes like that to flesh out the the message and atmosphere of the album you know to be able to use other people's words like that is is a great gift actually um Mm -hmm. and then again so they weren't too bothered when i did the same thing in the lyrics uh and i've tried to be open about it you know to to say that you know I've repurposed them. There's some skill in that, but a lot of the time, you know, I'm, I'm definitely using other people's words because they allow me to say more than I could on my own. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's fine that the, the message I'm trying to convey is more important than me getting credit as a, as a master wordsmith, because I'm not, but I've I've got an ear for perhaps when other people have written or said things that I think are really striking and, and, and can be used to convey something else. I'm also glad you started, you spotted the Washington post mm-hmm. thing, by the way. Um,
2: <laughs> that one was that one stood out. That one was pretty uh Yeah, it's it's yeah.
1: but it's a fantastic headline. You know, it's it's a like I said, taken out of context like much like the Rick and Morty quote taken out of context, it still it still holds up as mm. a fantastic piece of writing. Uh,
2: uh yeah, so okay. That makes sense. Um one other thing I guess that we wanted to ask about uh is on the new album uh especially compared to the first one There was a bit more, I guess what we call, straightforward language use. Um, For instance, on the final track of this new album, there are 482 words and 368, so that's uh, just over 75%, are exactly one syllable long. Whereas on the prior album, you did have some short, punchy terms, but you were mixing in words like, uh, I don't even know, apoptosis, uh, demiurge, And you had couplets like "deny your slow senescence, reject your inbuilt obsolescence," and scanning the new album, like there's not really any of that. Uh, The closest, I guess, the track "Barmecide Feast." Uh, You know, "barmecide" is not a uh, a day-to-day term, but it does seem like you made an effort to make the lyrics a bit simpler, more direct, more straightforward, uh, less, you know, three-four syllabic words. Is this another thing that kind of happened by chance, or is this something that has kind of been something you're doing as you've progressed as a lyricist, kind of trying to go for words that are a bit more, you know, I guess, accessible is not the right term, but a smaller, more direct, perhaps.
1: I think there's a, a threefold answer to that one. Um, partially it is, it is, it is a, a some sort of a, a coincidence. Um, more in the sense that, like I said, I was trying to be a bit more cerebral in the first album. Mm-hmm. Um, so I purposefully chose, you know, certain words like that. Uh, the senescence obsolescence line from *Acolytes* is still one of my favorites. Um, apoptosis, by the way, uh, is another one where I need to give credit. That was my my primary example of, uh, in this case, not outright theft. I actually, so I was struggling with that song. Uh, I had written something written, it wasn't quite as good. And then I was reading. So I'm a, a, a huge lover of uh, Jeff Vandermeer as an author, and I was rereading. I think. Uh, the Southern Reach trilogy, Annihilation, uh, Authority, Acceptance. Annihilation, obviously it's a movie now and uh, it's a fantastic book as itself. And I reached out to Jeff and said, can I actually use some of the the lines that in the book, there's a thing called the crawler in the tower and the tower is, the tower goes down rather than up. It's a very confusing uh, idea. And the crawler didn't make it into the film because uh, the film as, as the, the director said, was based more on his sort of fever dreamed remembering of the book and, and filtered through a lot of other things, uh, which is a really interesting way to make it. You know, it's a very different take on on the book than just a straight adaptation by by a, uh, all means. Uh, so Jeff was actually really happy that someone was wanted to bring the crawler in and we even used the lyrics. We made sure they were written in the video we did for apoptosis. But he went the extra mile and actually consulted his lawyer. He said yes, but went and consulted his lawyers about the wording to make sure we wouldn't get in any trouble. So he he explicitly gave us permission to. So the verses are taken from the crawler's writing, which are all these which is a very strange metaphor, and, and obviously use a lot of the the more flowery language than I, than I usually do, which is why that song is a bit of an outlier. Um, so that sort of skews that album a little bit, possibly towards the the more flowery poetic language uh, that he chose for that, because uh, it is it is purposefully abstract. But you know, all credit him, by the way, for just going next to mile and giving us permission and making sure we were covered and, you know, promoting the song when it came out. It's really nice.
2: Cite the your new sources,
1: one. That's good. <laughs> yeah, I, I've, man, I, you always got to cite your sources. That's why, yeah. I, that's why I'm careful to give all credit to everyone I'm stealing from because A, I don't want anyone to think I've I've stolen in that sense. But B, you know, I want people to go and discover the writers and, and I'm reading and the shows I'm watching, the movies I'm watching. I want people to go and watch these things as well. I like them. I want to support them the new one uh, again slightly coincidental in the sense of it's all about what fits the song obviously when the songwriting changes a little bit how i have to put the lyrics over them changes uh, i have a tendency to overwrite um a tendency to overwrite and then try and work out how i can fit a breath in at any point during uh, the delivery of the song uh, if you see some of the live footage you've noticed one of the things we've done recently is re-incorporating tim Moore as a backing vocalist because I can give him certain lines to get, uh, let me get a breather. Whereas previously I was trying to do absolutely everything myself and running out of... I, I could still do the song, but by the end of it I'm sort of gasping for breath and just, you know... One of the reasons we stopped talking between songs is because I'm unable to talk after each track. I don't have any uh, oxygen left. But there was a conscious decision to make the language a little more direct. Not necessarily the, the shorter words by any means. Um, I think that the, I think the short, the, the conscious decision to make the language more direct is, is there. Uh, I still try to couch it in some metaphor. I want it to be interesting. I don't just want to be telling you do this, do that, A, B, and C. It's not. It's not. It's not a, a bullet-pointed list. If you know what I mean. Um, the coincidence is they're shorter, perhaps because I'm trying to fit in more ideas. Um, whereas our previous on album one, I perhaps thought you know it, it was a bit more high level, overarching concept, I can, you know, use longer words, spread the line out a bit more because I'm trying to give them an overview. I'm trying to get a bit more to the nitty gritty of it while still being a little bit poetic and a little bit, you know, using a little bit of imagery. Once you're down deep in that level, you can get into the guts of things more and that, that lends itself more to shorter, sharper, more descriptive words, um, which in, and one thing I, I found, at least what I found after writing it, is there's a lot more lines where you can say line one and line two mean something together, but line one and line two and line three means something slightly different when you add the extra context. On the first album, lines were a little bit more contained in couplets. This is a clear idea and move on to the next one, or this single line is an idea, the next one is an idea. Uh, the shorter words, like more rapid delivery, fitting more in, enables you to sort of cut lines on the second album in different places and so you cut it here it means one thing you cut it here actually you've got a slightly different perspective um and i, I think i put that both coincidentally and purposefully i tried to do that in in different ways
0: hmm and certainly your perspective does come across quite clearly like in part due to this very straightforward language that you're using. But it's interesting that despite there being a very clear perspective that um, you know, is expressed through the lyrics on a number of songs on the latest album, you do seem to position your lyrics in a form where you're advocating against the things you say. Um, so, for instance, on Dark Forest Doctrine, um, you advise the listener to fear the other, fear the stranger, watch the skies and watch your neighbor, show no mercy to the traitor and no remorse and state that uh, "kill killer be killed is now the law. Compassion is a weakness we cannot afford. But by the time you get to the end of the song, the song itself is clearly, as we said, pushing against uh, and lamenting, uh, you know, this quote, Dark Forest Doctrine. Um, so why did you choose this kind of framing, uh, you know, and how does this pair with the more straightforward language that you've used as we've just discussed?
1: I think more than anything else, it's, it's a lot of fun to set up an idea, then knock it down. <laughs> um I mean, you could cut the answer there really if you want uh dark forest is is, is a perfect example uh the, the, the novel I, I took the title from uh is uh about, about a lot of things but one of the, the dark forest doctrine is a is a potential solution to the fermi paradox the idea that you know if if life has evolved across the universe where is it why is it why is it dark out there um the dark forest doctrine suggests because everyone's keeping their heads down because uh, you know, there are wolves or because the situation is such that isolationism is the only way of survival. And I thought that was you know, a fantastic read for daily political life on the planet mm-hmm. as well. You know, the the tendency towards isolationism to to keeping yourself to yourself, to, to fear the other in case they're dangerous rather than embracing them in the hope that they are friendly uh, is a lot of what drives humanity into its tribalism. Mm-hmm. And I thought setting that up as an idea and, you know, it's 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 good uh fodder for visceral language and setting that up you know and then slowly but surely just tugging the threads as the song goes along and in, in a lot of them that sort of thing they don't all go that way uh, some are explicitly condemnatory from the start but quite a few of them you know uh hive mind is, is is another one that actually takes it from the perspective of the the antagonist in that sense really um but by the end as you're starting to see there's a lot of you know I'll, I'll reach back again to what I said earlier about taking things from like Fry and Laurie and uh Mitchell and Webb and Red Dwarf and Blackadder and that sort of thing uh there's a lot of cynicism and sarcasm in that you know that a lot of the sketches all the episodes set up this idea that's generally accepted and then use the, the thread use the, tool, the comedy as a tool to, to pull those threads and, and snip away at the edges and go this is absurd this is ridiculous you know we've established the fact and here is the counter argument through the the comedy through the sketch or through the song in my case um yeah i think that that, that sums one that really it, it's fun to do uh, and it, it's uh it's a bit different than just saying this is bad you know it, it allows me to do a lot more with exploring the topic in a quite a metal way uh, and then by the end of it you know realizing that the song you thought you were listening to is, is not actually about what you thought it was
2: is there a risk of misinterpretation like somebody reading for instance uh you know um kill or be killed is now the law of compassion is a weakness we cannot afford and going okay yeah no compassion got it like that's that's andy's advice cool
1: uh, yeah totally <laughs> okay um, one of the things i had to do uh, quite consciously was accept that people are going to interpret anything you do in the wrong way i think it's pretty clear as jess said that you know by the end of the song i've definitely Mm -hmm. uh flipped the 180 and shown you that what you thought was wrong as it were um i think in some ways that that is actually a stronger way of communicating with people in general instead of just telling them they're wrong it is even even in general daily life and political discourse that sort of thing is okay engage with this and then slowly start to uh, illuminate the contradictions, illuminate the flaws, and go. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's that's interesting. But have you thought about so and so, or how does that uh you know square with this or that or the other? You know, it, it's not just saying oh you're wrong, because people, uh, and I'm not you know both sizing this by any means, but people in general are very defensive creatures, mm-hmm. and we don't like to because you, know, you know it's the the gambler's fallacy and all that sort of stuff. A lot of the reason we're seeing people resisting. A lot of stuff where they are resisting in the world you know you don't need me to tell you what's going on uh it's because they're so embedded in this idea that you know i've, I've chosen my side i've chosen my tribe and if i admit that i was wrong i'm gonna look like an idiot and i don't want to look like an idiot so i'm just going to double down and triple down whereas when you slowly instead of the shock doctrine which by the way fantastic book and informed uh, the album quite a bit um that was a wonderful plug i should get paid for this um <laughs> instead of shocking people into entrenching their position a song like dark forest and hive mind is here's your worldview and by the end of it i've i've hopefully started to subtly without you knowing it you know frog in a boiling water which probably not true um you've not noticed that i've twisted it 180 you've hopefully maybe even if it's one even if it's one or two of you will start to have reconsidered the perspective that you thought we shared
2: it's, that's another, uh, it's really surprising how many things you're saying that just lead right into the next questions we had. Um, yeah.
1: Works out really well for us. Yeah, it works out really well <laughs> for us. Um, People are going to think we pre-planned this.
2: Yeah, no, yeah, exactly. This is all rehearsed. It's, it's, it's all scripted. Um, it's all just from memory, Two hour, like an hour, two hours of memory, just straight off the head. Uh, so this is, a, this is a bit of a tricky question. Um, and so I want to make sure that I'm not trying to like pop you with a gotcha question or anything like that's that. Fine. Um, but it is something I noticed uh, that was in this, and it came with this idea that a lot of your lyrics do kind of um, criticize tribalism and criticize, uh, you know, only sticking to your side and only sticking to one worldview and, and not kind of listening to what's going on. Because you do have songs like uh, you mentioned, Dark Forest Doctrine and Hive Mind, uh, and then most blatantly, I think, as the single Faction Speak Louder Than Herds, where you say no one is willing to even try or even pretend to see the other side. You're making you know pretty clear statements. Uh, that about the warnings of group thinking and fanaticism uh, factions even begins with a quote from someone who compares the politic political situation we're in to people leaving their caves to uh, lob grenades at each other but on the other hand though on this album, you do have messages that do take a position quite clearly and definitely label certain actors as enemies or dangerous to the future. Um, Barmicide Feast calls out the upper class for, uh, quote, a decadent display of shameless arrogance and ignorance barely disguised as disdain. Uh, the Price of Peace argues against uh, partisans and patriots, draped in faded flags, reckless in their stolen valour, shameless in their martial drag. Uh, and elsewhere you condemn certain actors as liars or vultures people who are digging our common grave and directly attack the position that the status quo must be maintained at any cost uh, so is there a contradiction here is did you find it difficult to like balance calls for calm and dialogue in a genre that's known for calls for violence and murder and death and indeed an album that does take certain strong political stances or Possibly, have I just misinterpreted everything that you've uh, written?
1: No, no, you're you're dead on. Um, so before we go any further, though, so the uh, arrogance, and ignorance, disguise, descri- uh, disguise of disdain, by the way, was only partially me. I took, I can't, I that was from a uh, a column in a newspaper somewhere where they described uh, mm-hmm. the refusal to listen to advisors being arrogance and ignorance disguised as disdain, it, in not hmm. quite those words. I, I, I had to massage it fit. Uh, so that's not me. That's just another line I stole, but the um, <laughs> partisans and patriots and all that sort of stuff in, in price Peace was me. I, I definitely wrote that one not steal that one. Uh, so I was quite proud of that one. Um, there's a potential for contradiction there. I, I think I'm not necessarily saying don't have strong opinions by any means. Um, it is more a call for understanding where that comes from. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think uh, understanding does not mean endorsement uh, by any means. Mm. Uh, in fact, if anything, if you see someone as the enemy, it is a lot easier to uh, to conquer them, or as I would prefer, to to bring them on side and stop them being an enemy. You know, to turn them from an enemy to friend. Mm-hmm. If you actually understand their perspective. Um, like I said, I, I one of my concerns, uh, and I think you're, you've you've touched upon it there, is is I didn't want the album to be seen as both sidesism. Uh, factions in particular being one that could very much be reinterpreted as why aren't we listening to the racists or the misogynists or the anti-vaxxers or whoever on the other side, you know, we should be listening to them and considering their perspective. I was like, in a sense, actually, we should be listening to them, but we should be listening to them to understand where that's coming from and why that's happening. Mm. Um, I mean, a lot of the anti vax sentiment, the the push towards uh, dictatorships and authoritarianism, Even in the so-called liberal western countries comes from a full-on disillusionment with the neoliberal project you know at some point that house of cards is going to topple because it is based upon constantly uh bailing out the banks and constantly gerrymandering elections and that's not any one country this is a horribly universal thing um and i think to understand people's rage and fury and why we've got we more in, you actually need to be able to look at their perspective. Um, when I say, you know, no one tries to even see the other side, there is a there is an inherent danger in assuming you are right. Um, not just because you miss a lot of the nuance of the human experience, which is very important to bring people to your side, is to understand where they're actually going from, and what their concerns are and, and why they're Hurting, you know. What's the the Star Wars? Go. Fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate, hate leads to suffering. You know, a lot of this comes from fear. People are afraid of immigration because they're afraid. They've been told that you know the what's that classic uh, political cartoon? The rich man with a plate full of cookies, and one guy's got three, and the immigrant has none. And the guy is the, the the rich man is holding on to all his cookies, mm-hmm. going, oh, "Watch out that that foreigner's going to steal your one cookie." Mm-hmm. You think, you know, really sums it up, they, you've been taught to fear the other in that sense, uh, but it comes from the fact that the current political situation and the social situation in capitalism in general hasn't delivered what it promised, hasn't delivered you know, universal prosperity by any means, and people are hurting, and they're looking for someone to, to lash out against. Mm. Um, people aren't intrinsically bad or good. They were weirdly sentient animals who you know, <laughs> you know, need food and shelter and love and when those things we don't get those we get angry and defensive mm. um, particularly when you know we're paying taxes and grouping together in what should be a stronger i'm, I'm very much a weirdly a utopian you know i see the potential for human beings to come together and create greater things when we're being promised that and not delivered it it is very easy for people to lash out at the people they perceive as wrong um and so i'm not saying you know blindly accept other people's ignorance as being the same as your knowledge kind of thing which is uh, another terrible thing these days with everyone assuming that just because i have a voice and opinion it is of value uh mine certainly isn't in a lot of areas by any means but i am saying that to understand where people are coming from uh allows you to start to perhaps unwrap and unravel what has caused them to get there um you can't just grab people are stubborn like mules you know you can't just push them in a direction but you can coax them in a direction you mm-hmm. can understand how they got there um but yeah i was definitely conscious of the the capacity for it to be misinterpreted and, and misused in different ways uh you know, factions being i said the the key example of all that um and i, I think i'm just accepting that it's going to be even the most innocuous thing is going to be misused by certain people uh, interviews like this by the way uh, are fantastic for explaining the context um, it's why I love doing them because you know I love hearing the sound of my own voice but it's also a great <laughs> way to give that extra context that perhaps the song has and at least, or at least get it on record by saying you know I, I'm not saying you know both sides are equally as good or there's good people on both sides in this case I'm saying if you really want to stop there being both sides and, and, and find a sense of unity we need to find a way of understanding the root causes of things like uh, implicit racism, misogyny, you know, where, where it's coming from. If we're just solving the symptoms by saying, don't do that, we're not curing the disease that's causing them in the first place.
2: Hmm. Does, it, does it feel odd at all to have written a metal album that um, ultimately is in some ways a call for understanding and unity and utopia? Is that is that is that okay in metal? Is that allowed? <laughs> it's,
1: it's, it's funny, right? Um, so, as I said, it's, it's quite a sad album and it's, it's angry and it's frustrated, but underneath all there is, there is that hope for better. But the thing is, I think I think that is implicit in a lot of albums, even though they don't, uh, you know, metal has this, uh, this um, the word? reputation. I couldn't think i couldn't think of the word reputation god it's, it's <laughs> stuff. um for being very negative and, and it can be but metal is about the expression of negativity rather than necessarily the endorsement of it i'm using endorsement again you yeah. know there's definitely some stuff out there that's you know depressive for a reason and is, is saying you know feel terrible be a terrible person every <laughs> art form has that sort of thing but for you know a lot of bands it is it's catharsis it's getting this sort of stuff out uh, and even the most political bands, you know, your Heaven Shall Burn and, and Misery Index and uh, East Grow, you know, even going back to Minor Threat and that sort of stuff, they wouldn't be saying this sort of stuff if they didn't think it would make a difference. Like it's not they're not just expressing this is bad. I'm just going to leave it at that. There's clearly an implicit sense they're trying to make a statement to make people aware of that because they think we can do better. In in, in every dystopia, there is the hope for a, a utopia you know it, it, even in tv and movies and books sort of thing people are writing this as a as a warning because they actually clearly think that humanity is capable of doing better mm. um i think implicit in every post-apocalypse you know it looks dark on the surface it's very dark you know nuclear winter has come the zombies have risen A virus has killed off half of humanity the warning is this is bad because i don't want to lose half of humanity you know they're not saying this is a good thing the very fact they're saying this is bad when you consider it from the other angle is saying well actually what they're really saying is human beings are good human beings have a lot of potential and and that is that is, that is very much my belief you know like i said as well as the prog rock i, I remember being raised on a lot of uh a lot of star trek uh and ian m banks who are, are, are two i think key source of how i view the world which both had a, such a utopian view that once humanity gets past its base impulses, um, mostly through being post-scarcity, which I don't know if I'll ever reach, but I'd like to, um, we're capable of great things, and it, and the sadness is for me how many great things we're capable of now already, but we lack the social capital or political will to achieve. Um, so no, I don't think it's out of touch by any means. I think maybe it's perhaps a bit more noticeable. But if I think of the, a lot of the bands I listen to they're angry because they think we're capable of better you know if they maybe if they wouldn't explicitly put it like that um they wouldn't bother trying to communicate with people if they didn't think people weren't able to listen
0: Hmm. i think what you've just said uh, leads very naturally onto our final question which is you know um in summation, uh, what do you feel is the role of uh, lyrics in your music, um, you know, on a broad scale and perhaps, you know, on an even wider scale in metal metal um, as an art form?
1: Uh, so I'm going to contradict myself a little bit. Uh, <laughs> That's but, all right. Um, <laughs> as as, 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 as I said, uh, collectively, all five of us in the other don't get all the lyrics, uh, we really do write for ourselves. You know, uh, we're, we're bouncing ideas all, around all the time. We're not really considering... An audience at any point, to be honest. Even though, as you as you pointed out, you know, I'm I'm writing a lot of we at the minute. I'm, I'm putting myself in that sort of position. Uh, if, if, if if most, I'm considering maybe an imaginary audience, but I'm trying to just be happy with what I'm saying. Like I said, it's uh it's a personal album. It's right. Really, it's all about catharsis, really. It's getting mm-hmm. what I'm feeling out. Um, and the great thing about this album. I've, I've always felt that uh, being in a band is fantastic therapy. Every time we practice, every time we play live, after spending sort of two hours screaming, uh, and in this case, two hours screaming about things that really bother me or really mean something to me, I feel better. I legitimately feel a weight has been lifted. Mm-hmm. I am, well, I ache, but I am also looser. I'm breathing better. I am I, I, a better person because of this band, because of what it, the outlet it allows me. So the role of my lyrics, really are just for myself uh in quite a selfish way but even though i said you know, we don't write for an audience i suppose there is always an ear and i want it to be understood i'm trying to even if i'm just talking to myself i'm trying to make myself clear to myself in that sense and and hopefully you know if anyone reads them and we've gotten some really good reviews for this album uh shockingly because I, I never know what to expect you know because as <laughs> i said we write it we write it for ourselves and you just we put it out there and hope maybe it's going to connect maybe i don't I, we don't know uh because we haven't written it to be popular it probably won't be was kind of the idea um and and, and just am just say thank you now to anyone who has bought it or listened to it anyone who's reviewed it um and has has, has liked it uh, it is very much appreciated very moving to know that it's made that connection, even though um, I don't know if it was really designed to do that. Uh, I'm sure you could dig into more of that sort of thing. Um, but more important than all the good reviews has been the people who have dug into the, not just the lyrical themes, but the musical themes and the whole idea of the record. People understand what it is saying. Mm-hmm. Is better than getting a nine out of 10 best album ever because. Uh, scores are <laughs> superficial and you know th- there's so many sites into it now that every every album can find a nine out of ten or a ten out of ten review um it's when people have put the time in to understand that really makes it all worthwhile and i think although i can't speak for other bands but i can probably speak for a lot of the bands i listen to who seem to have a similar mindset about it that the role of the lyrics is perhaps as a bonus to the music um because people you know a lot of metal fans just enjoy the music in the same way that and this goes back to saying metal fans aren't different than other music fans really you know pop fans just like a good beat and don't really pay much attention to lyrics is the the cliche um although there's you know there's a lot of wonderful intelligent pop out there in the same way that there's a lot of dumb always common denominator metal you know that's genres i said all exist on a similar curve and aren't, aren't special they all have greats and terribles and all that sort of stuff and they have intelligent stuff they have bangers that are just gut level you you get them there and don't care what's being said and they have stuff that's really clever that gets you right in the head um i think i can speak for i can't speak for but i'm going to uh bands who put all the effort into the lyrics knowing that even if only a tiny percent of their audience really pays that much attention that is still worthwhile you know it doesn't have to be everybody um it, it's one thing i hate i we said uh there's certain words i just don't want to use because they've either been overused in metal or they're just meaningless uh revolution being uh my personal bugbear It's been overused so many times by bands i'm not going to name because i don't want to start a beef that we would definitely lose um but it's, <laughs> everyone but it's never just,
2: listened knows exactly who you're referring to
1: right right uh, but it's just, it's just a meaningless word uh particularly without any action behind it um it, it's 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 vapid. It it just sounds good, but has no real content these days. And a lot of you know, quite successful bands have lyrics that are really open to interpretation because they're so generically written that everyone can see something in them. And so ultimately, they have no actual meaning. Um, perhaps they do to the author themselves, but they've sacrificed that meaning for mass appeal. And I don't want to do that. And the bands i really love like i said i can love a band even if i don't love the lyrics but i think for the most part the bands i do love are the bands whose message and medium both work together and i think i would say that the role in that sense is to reach that small percentage of people who really do pay attention and to inspire them Um, it's great that people just love the riffs on the album and if you are that person you don't care much about my lyrics That is absolutely fine. Honestly, Um, thank you so much for appreciating the riffs. I'm sure the guitarists will love them. And I think I wrote one or two of them. So yeah, good for me. (laughs) Um, But if you do appreciate the lyrics on my album, if you appreciate the lyrics on any album, if you're that person who has has gone and read the lyric booklet and has looked into where they're coming from, um, if you've looked into, you know, some of the the other artists they cite, I just want to say thank you for going the extra mile that makes it all worthwhile it doesn't have to be universally accepted as long as it's reaching connecting with some people i think it makes a difference
0: yeah absolutely well yeah thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us Uh, this is a really brilliant and insightful interview so um yeah thanks for getting up early and um chatting to us
1: (laughs) well thank you for having me as i said uh once I discovered this, it was, it was entirely my wheelhouse and I've, I've gone through several of them and we'll be going back through more of the previous editions because I just find what you're doing really interesting and, and hope you keep doing it.
2: Thanks. That's a, yeah, it's, it's huge. To To know that the people we're interviewing are enjoying the interviews. That's that always feels great. Definitely very much. So where can fans uh, check out more of what you're working on? Uh, You mentioned a third album. I don't, I don't expect that's coming out this year or anything right but uh... no
1: uh <laughs> probably 2023 uh we're we'll okay. aiming for um but we've already got four songs mostly written for that one um extending from uh what we liked on this album so each, each album is is an extension so um when we did album two we were looking at songs like acolytes and demiurge from the first one your bigger riffs i think were kind of where we we're going the next one, uh, there's a lot more playing around with, with dissonance and a lot more of the dynamics. There'll be a lot more quieter parts, extended bits where we don't necessarily, we're not necessarily playing full on death metal. Like I said, one of the songs, um, I'm gonna uh, an exclusive. The first two songs we've written are a two parter song. We've never done that before. That's something, so like we did a 12 minute song on this album, cause we wanted a long one. And the next one, we've got a song part one and song mm-hmm. part two and they're sort of interlinked to each other, but can be played separately. Whereas like the title track and the new one can't really be played in individual parts. Mm-hmm. Um, and the second part of that has, uh, what I'm hoping is going to be this sort of strange acoustic verse that is still going to be quite metal. Um, it's hard to describe. So we definitely got a lot of new ideas we didn't get to use on this album. And we're expanding on some of the songs we particularly loved. Um, so each one is, you know, hopefully people will see a common thread of our evolution and, um, but we're going to lose some people like we lost some people on kingdom who wanted another seekers um and because kingdom doesn't fit neatly in a particular subgenre mm-hmm. we definitely lost some people who just liked that particular subgenre which again mm-hmm. is fine i i'm not the sort of person who thinks just because you like to band once you have to like everything they do i don't really listen to opeth anymore um <laughs> not because not, not because they're not death metal or because they're not good because i liked what they were doing I liked it as it evolved. And at some point it evolved into something that I felt was a little too retro for my tastes. And so I was like, okay, that's not for me. I'm not gonna badmouth it. it. Um, I think they did dip in quality and they've come back up again since then uh, as they've really found their footing again. But if, you know, someone who liked Kingdom doesn't like the next album, that's, that's fine because it's not gonna be the same, exact same thing again. We're gonna keep evolving. Hmm keep your eyes on our band camp that sort of stuff we have uh I'm gonna do the little the shilling at the end of the yeah, interview please. no please uh, yeah. there, there is going to be a vinyl version we we fell foul of all the vinyl delays and then our first test pressings were warped um so I had to get a second set sent Mama, through which yeah. was again delayed and every delay obviously just led to further ones down the line so with you know we're looking at sort of I assume February March next year I think for the vinyl but we are going to be issuing a little bonus track to go along with that for people who um pre ordered the vinyl uh, it's going to be a cover, which I'm not going to tell you what it is, but it's not a metal song. It's one of those uh, metal songs where I'm uh, Tim, our guitarist, chose it, but the lyrics uh, fit fantastically as a metal song, which I think is always important. I don't like people covering pop songs where it sounds ridiculous you doing harsh vocals over mm-hmm. lyrics that clearly weren't designed for them. In this particular case, I think people are going to be very, very pleased with what we've got. <laughs> um but it also features our first uh, first clean singing on a record as well which oh. is both me and Tim doing some harmonies um it is heavy as a very heavy thing that's got a degree from heavy university don't worry um <laughs> but yeah we're going to rec- into the studio to record that in the next couple of weeks so cool yeah keep your eyes open and ears open for some new stuff as well
0: sounds good sweet yeah. sounds good yeah we'll put those links in the episode description as always as well
1: thank you very much and again just thank you for having me uh, it's no been problem. an absolute pleasure
2: thanks for being here yeah we appreciate it uh hopefully yeah you can um i don't know take your morning nap <laughs> oh i'm definitely going back to bed after yeah. this don't worry
1: cool thank you so much All Right. take care both of you yeah. thank you very much
0: yeah. bye Thanks. Bye. thank you for listening to Lingua retallica we hope you enjoyed it and we hope you stay tuned for our next episode before we leave we just wanted to acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the kulin nation and the gadigal people of the eora nation we pay respects to their elders past present and emerging